All right, well, welcome. If you're joining us online, whether you're at Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, we are stoked that you're with us. Hey, let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God, right? I think most of us do. Maybe you found yourself in a mess somewhere and you said, God, oh God, if you'll just get me out of this, I will thank you for the rest of my life, right? Or perhaps you're a business person and you said, God, if you will just really bless my business, I want you to know I will become the most generous steward you've ever seen. And so we, we kind of make this deal with God, or perhaps you've found yourself doing that in a relationship, maybe, maybe a marriage, maybe you were struggling, and you found yourself so desperate you wanted to cut a deal with God. So you kind of look to heaven, and God, if you will just fix this marriage, oh, it's such a mess, I want you to know that I will be forever grateful. I think most of us have made deals with God. We we want God to do something, and we tell God what we will do in return. Would it shock you if I told you God is into making deals? I think some of you might be surprised at that. No, not necessarily the kind of deals I just described, but the deals that God makes are called covenants. And in the ancient world, a covenant was similar to what we call a contract. It, it established this relationship, and it kind of laid down the guidelines, the basis for the relationship. Here's what the parties were supposed to do, and it usually spelled out, here's what will happen if you don't keep your end of the deal, and here's what will happen if you do. Now, we're learning a lot in this series, and that's one of the things that many of you have commented on the most that you love about it, that you feel like, wow, you're just really picking up a lot of great stuff. Well, today's another one of those days. I want you to know that it is crucial, if you're gonna really understand the Bible, to understand the covenants there. So let's quickly, and we're gonna be quick, let's look at five biblical covenants that are critical for us to understand if we're going to understand the scriptures. The first one is what you would call the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant. You can read about that in Genesis 9. This is where God established after the flood that, hey, my image is still in humanity. God established that, look, you're still responsible to be a good steward of the earth. And God said, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. That's the Noahic covenant. The second one, and this is a biggie, is the Abrahamic covenant. You can read about it in Genesis 12, and it's reaffirmed again in Genesis 15. Many would say that this is the most central or crucial covenant of all if you're gonna really understand the story of the Bible. God said to Abraham, look, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now listen, some Christian theologians believe that Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ. He is the seed 
That was the fulfillment. So all nations on earth will be blessed through Jesus. Other Christian theologians believe, it's an important distinction, that it was not completely fulfilled through Jesus, but rather God still has a lot of promises to fulfill to his covenant people Israel. And one day he's going to do that. One day in this time called the millennial reign, a thousand years on earth, he is going to fulfill those promises to Israel at that time. But we, we don't have time to go there today and get into all the minutia of that. But make note of that. The Abrahamic covenant is really big. So highlight that on your note sheet. Prick your finger and bleed on it a little bit just to get the point across. This one is really important. Third one is called the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, you can read about it in Exodus 19, Exodus 24. This is the one God established with the nation of Israel after he brought them out of Egypt. If you've ever seen that old classic movie, The Ten Commandments, you know about this one, right? The people are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives him the law. It's a dramatic moment where God says, look, if you obey my covenant, I'm gonna make you a very special people in this earth. Now, here's one thing you need to know about the Mosaic Covenant. It was very conditional. Not all covenants are the same. This one was particularly conditional. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, again, we don't have time but if you want to read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you'll see what I mean, because it, 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 it'll blow you away. God says, if you disobey, these are the curses that are going to come your way, and if you obey, these are the blessings that you're going to receive if you obey. So that's what I mean by conditional. The fourth one is called the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant, you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made this covenant with King David that, look, I'm going to establish your royal throne forever. You will always have someone sitting on this royal throne. You say, well, gee, did that happen? Well, here's where the gospel writers go to great lengths to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant promise. He was of the house and line of David, David. So, Tribe of Judah, house and line of David, he is the fulfillment of that covenant promise. But that brings us to today, the new covenant. That's the one that we want to focus on today. And all Christ followers ought to perk up because this one is sometimes called the Christian covenant. You say, well, did the Old Testament say it was coming? Yes, Two prophets in particular spoke loud and clear about this new covenant God was going to create. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both talked about it. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. You can read those if you want to read uh, about the background of this covenant. And they said, look, it's going to be quite different than the old. And when Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, had his last supper, you remember what he said when he took the cup? He said, this cup is the new covenant. Do you see what he was doing there? 
Jesus was going back to it with his disciples to Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, going, this is it. What they told about hundreds of years ago is now being fulfilled. I am inaugurating the new covenant right now. So there you have it, the five crucial covenants that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, there are more. There are at least seven that God initiated. And there are many other covenants that people made with people, groups made with groups, nations with nations, that kind of stuff. But these are the ones that are initiated by God that are most crucial if you're gonna understand the Bible. Now, you say, okay, a bunch of information, pastor, but what are we supposed to take away? Well, here's one thing I'd want you to take away. I find this pretty shocking. That God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, actually wants relationships with people. Is that a head scratcher for you? I mean, he doesn't need us, but he desires, he wants a relationship. And so covenants are all about relationship. I find that pretty amazing. But that brings us to today's passage from Hebrews chapter eight. If you have a Bible or device that you read from, you may wanna find that now, Hebrews eight. And before we look at the, we're gonna start in verse seven. One little nerdy Bible fact. I try to throw these in there occasionally for all you Bible geeks like me. I find this interesting. What we're about to look at, especially verses eight through 12, is the longest quote in the whole New Testament of continuous Old Testament verses. Did you get that? What we're about to look at is the longest quote in the whole New Testament of continuous Old Testament verses. So let's look at this, and then let's unpack it briefly. We're gonna start here in verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion that he would have had for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, that's the end of the quote. And then the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 13, sort of by way of commentary, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Note that word, obsolete. It's gone, it's passed away. For whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Why did they need a new covenant? What was wrong with the old one? <laughs> the people couldn't keep it. In fact, before Moses was even off the mountain with those tablets of stone, what was breaking loose down at the bottom? They were breaking those laws already. And even though they verbally said, 
we'll keep them, we'll do all that God said. They never did. They continued to fall short of what they had promised to do. So a new covenant was needed, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Now, Christians, I believe you're gonna go away encouraged today. I think you've got to, going to have lots of reasons to be joyful because we're learning in this series how much better it is for us than the old covenant people had it. And so today, specifically, I want you to see three ways that this new covenant that Jesus inaugurated for us is better than the old. First way, there's a better motivation to obey God. Now, on each of these three ways I show you, I'm going to ask the question, why? Uh, I believe it's important to know why sometimes. I think most of us are curious about the why. So I'm going to give you the why to each of these ways that the new is better than the old. So why is it better? Why is it a better motivation to obey God? Because it's internal, not external. Instead of it being external on tablets of stone, God says, look, new one, it's gonna be internal, written by the Spirit of God on our minds and our hearts. Now, here's what happens whenever any man, woman, boy, or girl comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what is called being born again or born from above. We are justified by grace through faith, all whatever words you wanna use, We got this brand new start with the Lord, a brand new life, passed from darkness to light, old life gone, new life come. Here's what happens. The Holy Spirit inside of us begins to develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We want to do the right thing. Real Christians, hear this now, want to please God. And one of the reasons for that is the Holy Spirit inside of us is spurring us on. By the way, that was the whole purpose of the Apostle Paul. He said, my whole ambition, my whole goal in life, you want to know what it is? I just want to please God. But that is is fulfilled now, not by us keeping some obligation. Oh, I got to obey these crazy commandments. I hate them. I don't want to do them, but I have to. That's fulfilled now as God begins to change our desires from the inside out. So hear me, Christian friend, today. The Christian life will never be lived consistently with excellence unless it's an inside-out job. I hope you're hearing that. Life just proves that it doesn't work the other way. If you're trying to get transformation, life change, If you're trying to get alignment with something and you're trying to impose it from the outside in, good luck with that. You can put up that 40 mile per hour speed zone sign and I will assure you people are gonna break it with glee. Oh, you can threaten them. You can make the penalties and the fines so harsh, you'll get a little bit of compliance, but it'll be grudging at best. For true cooperation, it needs to start with the heart, with the inner desires and motivations. You've got to want to do what is right. Any other way is just going to be very 
difficult. Now, that's the brilliant. That's the brilliance of the new covenant. Old covenant, again, outside in. New covenant is an inside out job, as, by the way, I'm constantly telling you. I just want to do a little test here. Have any of you heard these words from me before, like for years now? When we come to the Lord, I say he forgives all of our sins, he adopts us into his family, and he begins to change us from the inside out. You've been listening. I'm so happy. He begins to change us from the inside out, and that's because the Holy Spirit now is creating this hunger, this desire to want to please God. The overwhelming desire of a true Christian is to please God. Now, please hear me. No one ever does that perfectly, ever. We may go through seasons of rebellion in our lives where we willfully say, God, I'm just not gonna obey. But here's the deal. If you're a true follower of Christ, you are gonna be miserable in disobedience. You're gonna be absolutely miserable miserable. You know when you're outside of the boundaries. You know when you're coloring outside of the lines God, the loving guidelines God has given, and boy, you are miserable. So one of the awesome benefits of the new covenant is that it's an inside-out way of living. But let's go on quickly. There's the passage that we looked at earlier said something very interesting in verse 10 said, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, hey, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the greatest to the least of them. It's a very interesting passage. Not only is there a better motivation to obey God, but there is, second, a better relationship with God. Now, why is it better? Why is it better under the new? Because it's based on direct experiential knowledge of God, not just knowing about God. There is a huge difference between those two. We can know lots of information about God. We can be taught tons of facts, but there's a vast difference between that and an experiential relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. If you read scripture carefully, what you'll discover is that knowing God is at the root of every spiritual blessing in your life. Consider consider just one verse. We can look at dozens. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What an amazing statement. How do we have everything we need to live the Christian life? It's through our knowledge of Christ. And yet, ironically, at the same time, same writer, same letter, chapter three, verse 18 says, we're to grow in that. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that contradictory? How can you, on the one hand, have everything you need, and yet, on the other hand, he says you're to grow in the grace and knowledge? It's not contradictory at all. The knowledge that we're to grow in is this experiential knowledge. That's how we grow. 
That's not just being able to recite Bible verses and creeds, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's to grow in the knowledge of God and our experience with God, to do life with God day by day and learn his ways. God is not into microwave maturity. God is into a long obedience in the same direction. And the story of the great women in the Bible, the great men in the Bible, the great men and women throughout history demonstrates this powerfully. We come to God as we are. We're usually far from being usable by him in any kind of significant way, but he takes us on this long process of journey of transformation. He molds us. He makes us. And here's the thing I know about us as humans. We want it to happen fast. We want to go to an event and get zapped. We want to do one new thing and say, God, would you just give me everything you're, you're looking for right now? But God says, no, I want to take you on a journey. It's going to be a process. God works through process. Now, I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, I want to speak to your heart here for one moment. I believe I'm talking to some people right now who you, you honestly want to grow in Christ. Pastor, how can I grow? How can I really, really get going on this process here? Here's what I would say to you. When you want that more passionately than you want anything in this world, you will grow. You will. And what you're gonna find is that God will use life itself to grow you. He'll especially use your failures to take you into a deeper experiential knowledge with him. But here's the thing you want to look for. If you're a leader out there particularly and you're, you're helping other people along in this journey, what we call discipling them, you say, Pastor Rex, what should I look for to, to, to kind of measure, if we can do that, if a person is going deeper with God? The one thing I would point to would be humility. If you're becoming more pompous and proud, you're not growing, you're declining. But if you're growing in your depth of humility, then I would say you're probably really growing closer to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 11, at that time, he said, I, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hid these things from the wise and learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. I think Jesus is speaking there of the humble, simple childlikeness that he's really looking for in every one of us. And I've just come to believe that our experiential knowledge of God will be in direct proportion to our humility before God. God loves a humble heart. As he said through Jeremiah the prophet in, in, excuse me, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 66, this is the one I esteem, the man or the woman who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So what have we said so far? There's a better motivation to obey God under the new covenant. There's a better relationship with God. But here's the third and final thing I would share with you. Hallelujah, this is good. There is a better 
remedy for sin. Why is it better under the new covenant? Because it's not just covering sin, but it's actually forgiving it and releasing us from it. Now, maybe you knew this, but I did not. I'm just acknowledging my ignorance. Until just a number of years ago, somehow I had missed this. I just assumed forgiveness was forgiveness, Old Testament, New Testament's all the same. But until I was studying the book of Hebrews for a small group Debbie and I were leading, and I discovered that the sins of the old covenant people of God were not actually removed, they were only covered. Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a difference. Under the old covenant, sin was never removed. It was only covered, and that is an important distinction. You really see that most clearly in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, for instance, verse 11, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, catch this, which can never take away sin. That's a head scratch. I thought that was the whole point. I mean, why would they do that over and over again if it really didn't remove the sin? Well, uh, as we move toward our close today, I want to try to explain that distinction to you between the old and the new. What do we mean by it covered their sin, but it didn't really remove it? I have here a blank check. Now, I hope you know that this is an intrinsically worthless piece of paper. <laughs> Certain things have to happen to it for it to have some worth. Um, if you were to steal this and write a million dollars on it, it wouldn't mean anything because I haven't put my signature on it. I could tear it up to in, into a hundred little pieces and I would lose absolutely nothing because it has no intrinsic value. But, watch this, but, you know how this works. If I were to write your name on it and then put a thousand dollars right beneath that on that line and then I were to put my signature on this, and you were to take this to your bank, conditional, of course, upon me having at least a thousand bucks in my own account. Guess what? You just got a thousand bucks richer. That's the way checks work. So I write your name on this, let's suppose. I write a thousand dollars. Let me spin this scenario for you. Let's suppose that I owed you $1,000, but I don't have enough cash to cover it in my account. And so you and I make an agreement. You agree to this. I say, look, I'm gonna write your name on this. I'm gonna even sign this. I'm gonna put $1,000 that I owe you, but I just don't have enough money in my account to cover it. And I'm gonna post-date this check to the first of like next month. And by then, I'll get paid from my job, and I'll have enough in my account so I can cover this in cash. So I write your name. I write in the $1,000. I sign this. I post-date it to the first of like the next month, and we agree that this will sort of cover me until my debt can actually be paid and removed. And so there you have it. It sits there in your home, pretty much worthless piece of paper, until the date, until the first of the month. And on the first of the month, you go to your bank, you deposit this in your account, and it becomes $1,000 that is transferred to your account. Now, follow me here closely. All that blood in the Old Testament, 
all those sacrificial animals was like a worthless check, no intrinsic value at all. It was worthless. It was like a worthless check post-dated to Calvary. And every man, woman, boy, and girl who brought a sacrificial animal, a lamb, a ram, a dove, whatever it was, in effect was saying, I have nothing in the account, nothing to really meet this need. But here it is, post-dated to Calvary. Now, don't misunderstand me. They didn't understand all this retrospective stuff I'm explaining to you now. They just, by faith, brought their offerings and their sin was covered but not actually removed. But here's where it gets exciting. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, guess what? It's like his voice echoed back through the centuries to all those old covenant people who had brought the blood of bulls and goats to cover their sins. And it's as though they were sitting at home with these post-dated checks and Jesus said, it is finished. It's like he was saying there's something better than gold in the bank now. You can cash your checks now. Everything's been paid in full. And all the sins that had only been covered up until now were now finally removed once and for all by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I didn't know that until just some time back. And I'd been studying the Bible all my life. And so the Old Testament worshipers with their faith in God are going to be in heaven with us. Why? Based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But you and I today get the whole thing. We come to Jesus Christ and we confess our sins and they're not only covered, they're removed. They're completely forgiven. And that, my friends, is yet another reason why Jesus and the new covenant he came to bring us is better than all the rest. So I don't know about you and how you feel about it, but I am just so thankful that our God is a covenant-making God. And if you don't know him today, I'm, I'm telling you, based on what we see about his character in the Bible, God desires a relationship with you. He's drawing you. He's saying to you, I want you to know me. He truly cares. And he's calling you, even this day, into a relationship with him. And I say to those of you who are already followers of Christ, let me ask you, are you living the freedom? Are you living in the freedom of the new covenant? Are you experiencing that increased desire to please God? No one ever does it perfectly, but boy, we want to please God. That's a, boy, that is a genuine mark of a true believer. You just want to do the right thing. You can't, you can't get away from that desire. Are you basking in that and the transformation, that inside-out job God is doing, this experiential relationship with God? Are you thanking him daily? that your sins, as you bring them to him, are not only covered, but they're actually removed and your conscience is cleansed. Oh, how much better we have it. 
We ought to go out of this place today just rejoicing and celebrating the goodness of God because he not only calls us into relationship, but he helps us to flourish in that relationship as we live in the freedoms of the new covenant. Father, thank you for the powerful word from Hebrews. Oh, how much better we have it. We thank you that Jesus is better than all the rest, better than all the stuff that came before. We thank you for calling us into a relationship with you. I pray that, pray that this would be a day of transformation for any that you're calling but have not yet yielded their life to you. May this be the day in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.